Good morning, church. (laughs) How are you guys doing this morning? Good, good. Awesome, awesome. Well, if you guys, uh, some of you may know who I am, some of you may not. Uh, My name's AJ Williams. I am the uh, next-gen pastor at the Cedar Rapids Church Springs of Life. And if you didn't know it, I actually uh, grew up in this church. This is the church that I was born in, raised in, uh, creating chaos and havoc, breaking lights, you know, you know, running out of rooms because something was broken. Yeah, that was me. Uh, sorry uh, if, if any of my teachers are here. Sorry that you guys probably got the blame for it. It was my fault. I'll take it now. I'll take the blame now. Now that's years past. But anyway, I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad to uh, be here a second time. I spoke here just a few months ago in July talking about empowering the next generation and how it only takes one person to believe in another person in order to ri- have them rise up into what God's calling them to do. And so in today's message, what I'm going to be talking about is in God's hands now, in God's hands now. And today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at someone who would be considered in God's hall of fame, or like in another way of saying in God's hall of faith. And a little to know about me, when I talk about like hall of fame or anything like that, I am really big into football, especially my Chicago Bears. Who, where's my Bears fans at? Yeah, there's like five of us. I wouldn't blame us either. I know the season's horrible. You know, it's, it's fine. There's always next year, right? But I, I love like diving into like the stats and like the history of football. And um, just not that long ago, October 5th, 2023, we lost, you know, one of the Bears' most prolific players, uh, Hall of Famer uh, Dick Butkus, who he played nine seasons in the NFL. He was a pro bowler in eight of those. He had 22 interceptions, 25 fumbles, and he defied the role to what it is today as the middle linebacker. Like, even though he played, you know, decades ago, they still use him as a reference of this is how the position is played. And when he passed away, they had a lot of these different types of posts and things about him. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is one of his quotes that he had when he got inducted into the Hall of Fame was this. It says, there's only one thing I ever wanted to do, play pro football. Everyone seems to be made for something, and I've always felt that playing football was the thing I was supposed to do. I loved the game. And it made me think, man, when you wake up knowing you're doing what you're supposed to do, don't you have this like high on life? Don't you have this like, this is my purpose and I'm going to strive for it every single day? And the beauty part about being a Christian is, is we have a purpose, right? Every single day, God gives us this mission. God gives us this calling to be a light in the darkness. And if you feel lost, if you feel like you're not quite sure what to do, get into his word. Find that for you. Get that inspiration for you each and every single day. And so today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be painting a picture of what faith looks like using this guy who I would consider a pioneer, really, in both the Old and New Testament. One of the first things that he is a pioneer of is he was the first ever person to prophesy in the Bible which is huge, right? The first person to ever declare, this is what God's going to do on this earth. Like that takes guts. That takes a huge amount of faith. He was also the first ever person to be considered to walk with God. He was someone that walked with God daily. And the third thing that this man was known for was dying. I'll get to that one in a little bit, dying. But today's message is called In God's Hands Now. And now, I know that's a very um, Christianese kind of word. You know, that's something you don't really hear, you know, eating at Applebee's or, you know, walking around Target. But it's something you hear a lot, like, in the church. Am I wrong? No. Because what, what, what is it? What is it? When people are talking with each other, when people are, you know, they're sharing, you know, their testimonies are sharing, like, you know, what's been going on. They're like, hey, you know, I tried helping out this person. You know, I gave them some money. I gave them some food. You know, I gave them some scripture. You know, I did all that I could do. But, hey, it's in God's hands now. 
or, you know, in, in a ministry, right? Like, you know, I served on this team for a few years. You know, I did all that I could do. You know, I watched it, you know, thrive and, you know, it just became too much. And you know what? It's in God's hands now. We use it almost like a last resort, right? Like we talk about as if we've done all we can do. And now that we're done trying, it's in God's hands now. And the thing that I'm going to be challenging us today is that's not something we should be saying at the end of our testimony. It should be something that we say at the beginning. Amen? It should be something that we say in the beginning, believe in the midst of it, and know that it's going to happen in the end. Amen? Amen. Yeah, so today is in God's hands. Now, our jobs, you know, um, if you guys didn't know, I'm, like I said earlier, I'm the next-gen pastor at the Cedar Rapids uh, Foursquare Church, and one of my jobs as a pastor is to remind the kids and to remind the youth that God is so big, right? Every week we come together, I share God's big story. We share, you know, this is how amazing God is, and oh, yeah, we're inspired, we're great. And then they go back and do their weekly thing, and then they come back the next week, and oh, look how majestic and amazing God is, and oh, it's so great. But how often do we go to church on Sunday, we get refueled, we get energized, but then each day that we leave, all of a sudden, how big God is in our lives, all of a sudden it feels like it's getting a little smaller and smaller. And, and then all the problems that we have, they just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, when we look at modern day statistics, it's really interesting. Um, when they did a study on loneliness, uh, loneliness, when you look at it, it is just as bad for you as 12 packs of cigarettes a day. Lonely, I'm not kidding. Loneliness is just as bad for you as 12 packs of cigarettes a day, uh, a day. So when we gather, when we come to church, yes, we have this awe and amazement of who God is. We have this awestruckness, but we also have what? We have people together knowing that we're not the only ones. We have that awe and wonder, right? Statistics show that awe and wonder is actually great for you. It expands your mind. It raises your thought processes to new levels. And the Bible over here is like, duh, God's been saying this for thousands of years. Why do we now have to have statistics about it? You know, it says it. And, you know, God says to have solitary in families. In Hebrews 10, 25, it says, do not forsake the gathering of yourself together. So why is it taking us thousands of years to say, oh, well, look at this. Loneliness is bad for you. Oh, a life without awe? Yeah, that's bad for you too. God is saying, no, duh, I know how you were made. I know how you are structured, and I'm giving it to you being in church. The author, David McCollin, he says this, why is it that some people, they look to the stars and shoot for them, and other people even barely look up? Some people shoot for the stars. They see them, and they are striving for them. This man, this author, he was, he's actually a historian author. He's written books about our founding fathers, about the American Revolution, about world wars, and he sees these amazing people. He's writing about these people every day, but then yet he goes into his community. He goes to people around him, and all he sees is this. Why do people, some of us, look up to the stars and shoot for them, but some of us barely look up. Why do we go to church? It's scriptural. It's Psalm 121. Lift our eyes above the hills to the one who made the hills to be reminded of God's power. That's why we go to church. The world goes and says, oh, you're lonely? Here, join this yoga class. Join this book club. Oh, you need some awe? Look at this really nice painting. Those things are good and you should do them, but they should not replace what God has created you to be in the church. So how amazing is it for him that he knows our needs, he remembers our frames, he knows how we're built, the things that we need. The words of Jesus in Matthew 6.37, 6, 
33 says this, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all the other things will be added unto you. Seek the kingdom of God first, and then, you know, join that yoga class. You know, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and look at all the beautiful paintings afterwards. Like, those things are great, but seek it first. It's in God's hands now. What is the whole world? You know, think about it. Psalm, you know, Psalm chapter 8, we have that famous song, right? He's got the whole world. Stop. Nope, that's a lie. Mm -mm. Nope, 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 nope. You see, the actual translation in Psalms chapter 8, David, when he said this in Hebrews, it says, when I consider your heavens, it's the work of your fingers. Hands, hands is heavy work. Hands is hard work. You know, you lift a chair, you know, with your hands. You lift a couch with your hands. No, this is dainty work for God. The heavens, the galaxies, the cosmos. This is light work. It's like a Lego set for him. He's just fiddling around with it. But when we see all of this stuff, when we see the galaxy, the infinite cosmos that we are in, in Isaiah 40, 12, it says this, he measures the heavens at the span of his fingers. All of everything that we know in existence is in his grasp. It's in his fingertips. He's got the whole world in his hands, which is so awesome to think because when we have problems in life and we think things are so urgent and we need them right now, as God is controlling everything that we know into existence, he cares just as much about your needs as he does the rest of the universe. He loves us so much that he will do what he needs to do in our lives as well as take care of the rest of what we know and exist. First Peter 5, 7 says, give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. Now, that's really personal for me because, you know, this past I would say year and a half has been a major tailspin. I mean, um, like amazing things. Like I wouldn't trade it for the world, but it's been a lot. Um, I started a new job in Cedar Rapids. I originally lived in Tipton. Uh, new environment, just getting used to that. Uh, soon after that, my amazing wife and I, we got married on October 15th last year. Hey-o. But anyway, uh, and then, you know, soon after that, a few months later, we bought our very first house. And then right after that, you know, three months ago, in two days, we had our very first baby girl named Billy. Now, yeah, right? Isn't that awesome? But my world has been a tailspin. I'm like, okay, what's next? You know, I've been like, okay, God, this has to be in your hands because I can't do this on my own. Like, God, I don't know what I'm doing. God, I don't know what, like, what you want me to do. I keep praying and reminding myself that it's in God's hands now. And so he is someone that, yes, he is the master of the universe, but also at the same time, he looks to every little detail in our lives and he has a plan for you. The man who has created everything that we know exists has a plan for each and every one of us. He is a way maker a miracle worker, a promise keeper, right? A light in the darkness. So today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be actually looking at this man named Enoch. And I'll be honest, before prepping this message today, I didn't really know much about him. This was actually a really fun Bible study for me for the past like two or three weeks. And uh, the first thing I actually want to get us to before I get too nerdy into it is in Hebrews 11, 5 through 6. And it says this, By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found. Presumably, they searched for him. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as the one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So Enoch, 
He is in God's hall of fame in my book. He is one of the only people in God's hall of fame that he is known for something that he did not do. Think about that. I mean, you look at Noah. Noah built the ark, right? You know, David and Goliath, David fought the giant. Even like Abel, right? Abel gave out of faith. Enoch, well, he didn't die. You know, through faith, he was taken, right? It's interesting because he is most known in act of faith for something that he did not do, which tells me that the amount of faith that it takes to do something in faith is the same amount of faith it takes to say no to certain things in life, right? If we said yes to every single opportunity that we had in life, we're going to be run down, we're going to be tired, we're going to be exhausted and burnt out. But if you are obedient to God, you are walking with God, there's going to be certain things that you're going to say yes to, and there's going to be certain things that you're on mission and you're just going to have to say no to. It takes just as much faith in saying yes to something as it is to say no. It takes as much faith to stay where you're at. It takes just as much faith to go and do something new. So, Enoch, the three things that I mentioned earlier was walking, prophesying, and then the passive one, which is dying. It was by faith that he had an NDE. Now, a lot of us, we know NDE as like a near-death experience. Enoch, in his case, he had an NDE, a no-death experience, right? Um, Majority of what we know about Enoch, this is interesting, the majority of what we know about Enoch is actually in the New Testament rather than the Old, even though he was in the era of Genesis 5. But most of what we know from him is actually in the New Testament. And and when you think about it, the bulk of his testimony of who he was, how he lived his life, and how he ended actually should belong more in the New Testament promise rather than the Old Testament covenant. And we'll get into that. In Genesis 6, 5 through 6, it says this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So in this time that Enoch was alive, there was such great wickedness that God actually regretted humanity. It was so dark that, you know, he was ready to give up on humans. But with Enoch walking in righteousness during this time, how amazing is that testimony for us? Think about your workplace. Think about your neighborhoods. Think about your families. There's no place that's too dark for God's presence to be in. There's no place in your life where you can't be a beacon of light for God. It doesn't matter how secular you know, your workplace is. Well, no one else really believes. Well, you can still choose to live a life that honors God in that place to bring them in. Oh, well, my schools, you know, they're so dark. Okay, well, then be the light. Be the one that encourages. Be the one that helps out. Be the one that serves. Jesus came to, be, came to serve, not to be served doesn't matter how dark your situation is. God can still use you in those areas. Why? Because that's exactly what he did with Enoch in this extreme time of wickedness. So some of the things that I learned about Enoch when I was doing this study. First one is he did not die. The second one is he was actually the seventh generation from Adam and Eve. So his great, 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 great grandfather and grandmother were Adam and Eve. And then the last thing, or the next thing, is that he was saved at the age of 65. Saved at the age of 65. Our modern day statistics show that majority of salvations that happen in this world today happen when you are 18 years or younger. That's why when I was here last, when I was talking about empowering the next generation, that is my passion. That is my heart. That's what I want to see. I want to see, you know, our next church be so much better than what we are today. I want them to continue to raise the bar of what it means to be a light in this world. And when Enoch, when he was saved at the age of 65, you know, 
the thing that I thought that was interesting about this is you are never too old to be saved by God. You are never too old to be used by God. He walked with God for another 300 years after. God has something for you no matter how old you are. I mean, Enoch, this dude had his AARP card ready to get dinner at 4.30 and God turned his life around. <laughs> what we also know about, God, or about um, Enoch is that he got saved um, through his son. 65 years old, lived a life at that point, an entire life of darkness, sin, and hatred, and a testimony that would probably make someone in the church go, oh, that's, that's Enoch over there. You know, you know his past? But yet God grabbed him. Yet God changed him. Yet God walked with him. He delivered him. And what that shows us is that you are never too damaged to be in the kingdom of God. You are never worthless. You are never uh, not enough. You know, God loves you exactly how you are because in him and his being, you are bought by blood, you are spirit-filled, and you are his royalty. You are his children. So how did Enoch get saved? He got saved through the birth of his son, Methuselah. Now, it's funny because when you think about the role of a parent and a child, it's usually the parent's role to get the child saved. But in this uh, instance, it was reverse order. The child got the parent saved. And I don't know really how it happened. I don't really know um, how he got saved. But what I can share with you is from my personal experience of when uh, Billy was born, I, I was wrecked. At that moment, I just wanted to be a better man. I wanted to do what was best for her, to be worthy, to be called a father for her. And so just sitting in Enoch's shoes, understanding that when he probably held that baby for that first time, he goes, I got to make something different. I got to make something change. And since then, he walked with God for 300 years. And so when we're going to be looking at this story, when we're going to be looking at the story of Enoch, there's going to be five things I'm going to be sharing with you about walking with God. And the first one is this, is you will never be bored. You will never be bored. I love how C.S. Lewis, how he um, depicts um, God as Aslan because he is a lion in the wilderness. There is a wildness to God that no one can contain. He has an unorthodox way of doing things that just can't be explained. You know, Philistines, they come up to God's chosen people. They have this giant named Goliath. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Well, there's this, you know, big, tall king that's buff. His name is Saul. You know, let's use him. God's like, oh no, I want that 14-year-old that hasn't hit puberty yet. That's who I want. You know, uh, Elijah, right? Elijah, he needed a sign and wonder from God to prove to his people that he is still there with him. So he has this pile of wood and he needs God to make a fire out of it. What does God say? Oh, let's, let's make all of the wood wet, soak it, drain it. Doesn't make sense. The disciples, when they were chosen, they were a bunch of hood rat misfits, right? Bunch of fishermen, tax collectors. I wouldn't trust that group of safety scissors. But yet Jesus used them in a way to turn our world upside down, to live in a way in the life that Jesus lived. Last one is, uh, when Jesus took his disciples and, you know, he did his sermon on the mount and they needed to feed, you know, the thousands, what, what did Jesus say? Where's the kid with the Lunchable? <laughs> it wasn't really a Lunchable, I'm sorry. It was fish and bread, but you know what I'm saying. It wasn't a lot. It doesn't make sense. So then when we are constantly hitting this wall of, oh no, how is this going to work? God comes over and he goes, perfect. I got you right where I want you. Because God is so excited for these moments. Why? Because all of us want a testimony, but none of us want a test. 
All of us want that testimony. All of us want that jaw-dropping experience. But as soon as life gets hard, it's, mm, mm, no, I'm good. I'm going to back away. It's all, it's all fine and dandy. In those moments when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel fear, when we fear doubt, God is waiting for you asking, are you going to trust me yet? You will never be bored when you are following God. Uh, bodybuilders, you know, when they're trying to strengthen their muscles, when they're trying to get that perfect physique, what's the first thing they always preach? It's muscle confusion. Our DNA, how we are built as people is built for that confusion. We need that to grow. We need that to be as strong as we possibly can. Because why? Because when we get in a routine, what happens? We plateau, right? We only get so far. And how much do we like, love our routines, right? Our routines are only going to take us so far. You know, there's this poem I have, it's called The Cruel Falcon, and it says this. In pleasant peace and safety and security, how suddenly the soul of a man begins to die. We think we know what we want, we think we know what we need, but when we have faith in God, he actually reveals those things to us. How boring and um, how unfaith-like would our, would our life be if we never had to trust God? If we never had a confrontation, if we never had a struggle, if we never had, if we had that dream commercial vacation where we had all the money in the world and all of a sudden we're on the beach just relaxing, if that was our lives the whole 24-7, how small would our life be? I mean, if you think about it, what's Robin Hood without Prince John and the Sheriff of Nottingham? I submit to you some guy in tights running around in the woods. <laughs> right? Like, it's just, it's not, it, we, we're built to fight. We're built to uh, go on. We're built to send a message to the world that God is in control, not us. When, when we rise and we fight, there is a warrior that's inside of us to rise to the occasion so that when there's difficulty, when there's mess, when there's confusion, and we're asking why isn't it working, we can then, by faith, trust in God that he is going to come through. So the good news and also the bad news at the same time is you will never be Bored. God keeps you know, our lives as such to keep our prayer lives healthy. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to be in that walking, in that accordance with him. You know, God, he, he doesn't shop at Costco. He gives us his daily bread, right? My second point is this, and this is an added one I, I, I added on later on. Um, it won't be on the screen. It's, uh, you will never be alone. You will never be alone. In Psalm 139, we hear about God's omnipresence, meaning wherever, uh, he is everywhere uh, at the same time. He is always around. And where I am, I will be with you. God wants to walk with you. Um, Enoch, the thing that he is most known for when you look at the scriptures, when he's celebrated in both Hebrews 11 and Genesis 5, is that he walked with God. He was constantly with God. He was the first person in the Bible to be described outside of Adam and Eve as someone who had walked with God. And now walking with someone, you have to deliberately be on pace with them, right? How annoying is it when, when you're walking with someone and they're either too fast and you have to catch up to them, or they're too slow and you're just like, come on, hurry up, or they're the person that constantly walks in front of you without paying attention? Like, no, walking with God means that you are deliberately matching his pace. You are matching the seasons that he wants you in. Amos 3.3 says this, do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? You have to agree to walk with God daily. You know, Adam and Eve, when they walked with God um, in, in, in the beginning, they always walked with him at the end of the day, at the cool of the night, the golden hour of the day. And God would come down and be like, hey, you know, what, what'd you name today? Show me, show me what you did today. 
And they walked with him. It was a refreshment time. It was the highlight of, the, of their day. It refueled them to continue on. And the same thing can happen for us. Um, I have a photo for you guys here. It's the very first one. This is a book that I personally have not read, but um, I've done the cliff notes. I actually did these studies because I was looking at what, what's the Guinness Book of World Record of different types of walks. And this is one of the ones that, boom, it popped up first. It's this book called A Walk Across America by Peter Jenkins. And um, again, I haven't read the book, but I did the cliff notes. And I, personally, I can't read the book because it's such a sad story. Uh, his marriage bottomed out. He, did, he felt like his life was meaningless. He needed to figure out what to do. So he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to walk from one coast to the next. And the reason why I can't read it is because he has a dog, a husky that's with him, that eventually gets hit by a car and dies. I cannot do a de- dog death in the book. I just can't handle it. And of course, he puts it at the front page. But anyway... He ends up in Mobile, Alabama. After his dog died, his life is meaningless. He doesn't know what to do. He ends up in a church service preached by James Robinson. And all of a sudden, he got saved by Jesus. And everything that he was looking for on this walk was fulfilled by the power of Jesus Christ. This is a New York Times bestseller. It was a testimony that is unbelievable once you read it. It took him six years to walk from coast to coast. But that record only lasted for three years. The next person, this next photo I have for you, uh, this person, his name is George Megan. And George Megan, he had the most insane walk. This is an f- uh, awesome story. So he started at the tip at the bottom of South America and went all the way up to Alaska. And he made North America way much harder than it needed to be. Look at that. He took a detour. I'm going to walk this way and then boom, that way. And then straight up. He made it so much harder than it needed to be. This man walked 19,019 miles. It took him seven years to do it. He averaged over eight miles a day. He ran through 13 different pairs of shoes. That's not even the wild part. On the trip, he had two kids along the way. Dude was single when he started. He met this woman from Japan on his walk. She said, oh, you know, I'll walk with you. One thing led to another. They get married. Boom, she has a kid. She's pregnant. She goes back to Japan, has the kid with her family, comes back a year later, walks with him again, and boom, there's a second kid. So then she just decides to stay until he's done. The dude had a full-blown family by the time he was done. There's a power in walking. I have another one for you because, so this still isn't a world record because people have done the same exact um, route and then they've gone to other continents and made it even farther. It's absolutely ridiculous. But this next one right here, this is the Guinness Book of World uh, Record for walking on Legos. Dude's an idiot! Like, why? He broke this record not once, but then someone beat it on him again. And so then he did it a second time. This dude, yeah, why? I don't know. Yeah. He walked 8,898 meters, 0.9 meters, or 5.53 miles on that. This is our picture of walking in the lake of fire right here. That's what that shows us. So why are we talking about this? There's power in walking. There's a power in walking. There is a testimony when it comes to walking with God, sinking up with him, walking at his pace. You know, Jesus, when he lived on this earth, he often disappointed people. Because when they were looking for him, they're like, where is he? Oh, he's, he's, he's out with God. He, he prioritized his relationship with God. Even when people needed him, he said, I'm, I'm, I need to spend this time with God. There is a power in walking with him. 
So the next point that I have for you is you, have, uh, it's, you will never wonder where you stand. You know, Enoch had his testimony. He pleased God. How? By faith. He pleased God by faith. It is impossible. It's, we, we read it earlier in Hebrews. It's impossible to please God without faith. It's so important in your walk with God. You know, when Jesus was baptized, you know, as soon as he got dunked under, you know, the dove came down, the heavens opened up, and what did God say? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. But what's interesting about that is Jesus didn't preach a sermon yet. Jesus didn't perform any miracles yet. He didn't do anything extravagant. But yet God was pleased with him. And what that shows us is our doing for him means nothing unless we are being with him. It comes from our being that God is pleased with us. It's through our faith that God is pleased for us. You don't have to strive and say yes to everything and do all these amazing things and say, God, look what I can do. He goes, well, when's the last time you walked with me? When's the last time we spent time together? When's the last time that you and I were on the same page? You know, um, my youth group right now, we're going through this series called Who Am I? And we're going through this series because we're talking about our identity in Christ. We've talked about how he is our creator. We, uh, we are his creation. We talked about that we are sinners and that he saves us by grace. And last week we talked about how we are a royal priesthood, that he, under him, that we are royalty. And the biggest things that we have taken out of these things that's common every single week is two things. Is the first one is the power of scripture memorization. Because when we get lost in the world and our identity, when we start comparing ourselves to those around us, those are the things that the enemy wants us to do that make us feel down about ourselves. But when we hold scripture memorization, we hold the truth of who God says we are, we can combat those, those negative thoughts. And then the second one is this, is that your identity cannot be taken away from you. Your identity in God cannot be taken away with you, from you. The other fun thing, and I just had to add this into, into my sermon notes, is when you please God, you smell good. Now, now it, it does say it in the scripture. I'll get to it in a minute, but think about it. Do you have a friend or do you have a spouse to where like, hey, hey do, I, do I smell bad? And how good is it to finally hear like, oh, yeah, yeah, you, know, you are a little musky. You have that level of trust with someone, right? I mean, that's where I wear uh, dark clothes so you don't see my pit stains or anything like that. I kind of keep people at a distance just in case. But in Ephesians 5, 2, it says this, And walk in the way of love, just as Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When we are obedient, when we walk with God, we smell good. There was no point to that. I just wanted to add that because I thought that was fun. So 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So we make it our goal to please God or to please him, uh, whether we are at home, body, uh, home in the body or away from it. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what other people think. You know, we aren't here to please those around us. We are here to please and honor God. And the only way that we can please and honor God is being with him. You know, at your death, people aren't going to be looking at your resume and be like, oh, I'm pretty sure they went to heaven. Uh, you know, I think they did. Well, you know, you see that dress size? I bet they could have knocked it down a few. You know, that's not, you know, that's not what's happening. What, what, what do we do when we celebrate life? We celebrate that they're up there right? That they're in relationship with him 24-7 now. So then that goes into my next point. You'll never have to guess what happens next. Faith is believing in the things that have not yet happened or the things that are unseen, which is good news and bad news because when you look past in your life, when you look through your testimony, did you ever actually know what would happen next in your life? In all honesty, like every little detail how many of you guys had like the five-year plan, the 10-year plan, 20-year plan, and like all of a sudden you like look at it again, like, yeah, I marked every box. 
No, we don't. We don't know what happens next. But if you don't believe and you don't know what's going to happen next, what happens at the end is it comes out based on how hard you worked. But if you do believe and you accept the fact that you don't know what happens next, what that does, it allows God to work in you to do the miraculous. And what happened to Enoch is he didn't know what was going to happen yet, but yet miraculous things happened for him. He was saved at the age of 65. He walked with God for 300 years. And at that 300-year mark, God, as they're talking to God, he goes, hey, hey, Enoch, why don't we continue the conversation back at my place? Why, why, don't we, you know, why don't we go back to my place? Can you imagine him being in heaven, right, just walking around and having conversations with people? Like, oh, how'd you get here? Oh, well, you know, I walked with God. Well, yeah, so did I. But, like, how'd you get here? Well, no, I, I walked with him. So, like, you, you crossed the street and didn't look both ways? Like, what, what are you saying here? Like, no, no, I walked with God. You know, why did God choose this? Why did God choose to take him away? We don't actually, like, have that for sure, you know, this is why. People can theorize that he wanted to paint a picture of the New Testament and put it in the Old Testament of being saved and brought into heaven with him. But we don't actually know. Elijah did the same thing in 2 Kings chapter 2. And it's really a mystery when you think about it. But the best way that we can explain it, and it's actually Paul that explains it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53, it says this. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, which in this translation, sleep means death of a Christian, meaning you fall asleep, but one day you'll be waking up again. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be uh, raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself and with, with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortality. So Paul is putting language to what Enoch and Elijah gave us a picture of, that there will be a day, there will be a time when there is a generation of people who honor God, that seek God, that he will return and he will come again to fulfill his promise that he gave in John chapter 14. What's that promise in John chapter 14? I'll read it for you. John chapter 14, 1 through 4. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have... Would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. So when Enoch walked with God, when he had that testimony of going up to heaven, it was, again, in, in theory, it was a symbol of what we are to become with Jesus when we go up to heaven with him. So with that being said, in Jude, um, this is uh, some more that we hear about the Old Testament prophecy. This is, again, this is Enoch talking here. And he, again, Enoch is in the Old Testament, but yet what he is saying in Jude is actually a New Testament prophecy. It says this. It says, Enoch, the seventh son from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. Thousands upon thousands. He was giving a New Testament, uh, New Testament um, prophecy in the Old Testament. He knew from his walk with God that there was going to be something greater along the way. Death was the enemy's greatest weapon during this time, right? Because you know, sin separated us from God, but death kept us permanently away from him if we lived a life with sin. 
but through the power of Jesus Christ, right? Through him um, conquering death for us, you know, he took that away from the devil. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57, it says this, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin, or power of sin, is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God snatched it from the devil. The devil, he can still walk, he can still talk, he can still act big, but remember, he has no power over you at this point, right? He, ha- he doesn't have death to hold over you. He doesn't have that separation to say you are not enough. In some ways, you would say it's in God's hands now. You don't have to fear death. Psalm 116.15 says this, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. And it's precious because God is using what the devil had as a weapon to become our testimony in the future. Enoch, what I was talking about earlier is Enoch, his uh, son that saved him, his son's name was Methuselah. Now, it's cool because Enoch, he had this testimony of the New Testament, right, about Jesus coming again, you know, with all of his saints, and he had that prophecy of the New Testament of the future. Methuselah, on the other hand, this is interesting, he had an immediate prophecy attached to his name, and the prophecy meant his death shall bring it. He was literally a ticking time bomb of God's judgment. Immediate fulfillment of Methuselah's name was a ticking timer that was attached to his life. As long as he lived, God's judgment would be held back, that when he died, there will be some sort of judgment on the earth. And if you line up when Methuselah was born to when he died, and you put it into the world's timeline, the year that he died, something very significant happened. There was a really big flood that covered the entire earth. When Methuselah died, there was immediate judgment. Not that, you know, that God delights in killing the wicked. That's not what I'm trying to say here. What I'm trying to say is when you look at Methuselah's life, when you actually line it up, guess how old he was? He was 969 years old. God, why am I still here? (laughs) Yeah, my father was, was 300. Why am I 900? Because he loves his people so much. He's giving them every opportunity that he could with this man's life. And as long as he lived, they wouldn't be judged. And God's response was to an unchecked evil that just wouldn't go away. Just like how we look into the book of Revelations where he's going to have that same measurement on the people of that time. It was two different timelines, but the same exact story. How awesome is that? So to answer that question, well, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because God loves his people so much. He wants us to be that beacon in a dark place. He has a responsibility for us to tell the world, not to be like, oh, well, you know, God's coming back and you're going to die and you're going to go to hell. No, that's not our message. That's not the message that Jesus gives us. What is is the message Jesus gives us? It's the most basic and the most thing that we learn in Sunday school. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We are supposed to be a beacon of hope. We are supposed to be the one that brings the light to those around us. We are supposed to be the ones that says, you know, Jesus hasn't come back yet. You still have a chance. Don't be in terror. Don't be in fear. You know, I understand life's not going the way that you thought right now. But I promise you that when you are with Jesus, all your answers will come to pass. Everything you need will be fulfilled in him. 
So I'm going to go ahead and end it right there. Um, in my time of prayer, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to uh, sit for just a few moments. And if there's something that's ever stirred up in you, if there's things that you know that like when I said, oh, I hit a wall and I don't know what I'm going to do, I, I want to give you that chance to offer it to God and have that opportunity. Maybe I was talking about being a light in the community and you were like, yep, I, I know where that needs to be. I just want to take that moment and pray and just give you guys that courage and give you guys that strength to give those things to him. So would you guys bow your heads with me? Dear God, first of all, just thank you. Thank you for today. Thank you for what you're doing in this church body. Thank you for this season of life that we are in, God. And God, I just pray, Lord, whatever struck a chord um, with us today, whatever spoke to us today, God, that we can just give those things to you, Lord. As we sing in our worship song, it's everything and nothing less, Lord. God, what is it that we are holding on to? What is it that we are holding back? What is it that we still haven't quite placed in our hands to give to you? God, it doesn't matter how young we are, how old we are. God, we know that you can use us. You, we know that you are still active and alive in this church. God, God, reveal to us what is it that is our next step? What is it that you want us to do? Maybe we do know what it is, and we just need to take that courage and say to those people, hey, I'd like to be a part of this. And God, I just end that when we leave today, when we go and eat our lunch, when we go back into our homes, into our family situations, Lord God, that you just remind us how big you are. That when we get into those times of fear, anxiety, you know, depression, whatever it may be, God, that we can just be reminded like, no, God has the world at his fingertips. He cares about me. He loves me. He wants to be with me and give us that faith to give those things to you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.